1: Here we go, folks, another episode of Positively Trek with me, Dan Gunther, and my wonderful co-host, Barry DeFord, uh, talking Trek and continuing our Star Trek Prodigy discussion this week. Barry,
2: how are you doing? I am extremely wonderful. Uh, Thank you very much for asking, Mr. Dan. I'm quite happy to be getting a little bit more time to kind of flesh out some of the things that we spoke about in Star Trek Prodigy I found as we talked more things kept coming up and as i've said a number of times a lot of things happened in this series that are worth um more conversation so very excited to keep this one going how about yourself for sure i'm doing really well uh, really kind of oddly enjoying
1: this very short kind of fallow period of star trek you know we're getting so much new Star Trek and I'm sure once Picard starts, it's going to just continue at a breakneck pace once again. Uh, so it's, it's kind of nice to have this little break right now and we can kind of just relax and reflect on what we just saw and look ahead with giddy anticipation to what's coming on the horizon. So
2: yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable to think in, in that respect that <clears throat> what, uh, 2009 is, uh, 15 years ago, and we were coming off of a very long unwanted break from Mm -hmm. Star Trek. And and that's that's pretty neat that now we're kind of at another side of that, the other side of the coin, where it is actually, you're right, kind of nice to kind of slow down, catch up a little bit, just do that sort of stuff. That's nice.
1: Well, before we get to the prodigy discussion, we do have to talk about some news and we're talking about, of course, the huge amounts of Star Trek five series on right now, one of which is going to be ending soon though, but that is not to say that there aren't going to be more series to come and replace it because once again, on the heels of Michelle Yeoh's Star Rising with these accolades and and her wonderful performance this past year in Everything Everywhere All at Once, winning the Golden Globe for that. Paramount is rushing to assure us (laughs) Star Trek Section 31 is still in development with Michelle Yeoh in that lead role. So I thought the timing of this was really interesting. Just kind of them sticking their hands up and saying, hey, hey, no, we're still we're still doing this. We're still doing it. We swear. Uh, I have yet to hear Michelle Yeoh say that, which I would love to hear at some point. But uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on all of this and the timing and the the how likely is it we're going to see this series anytime soon?
2: Michelle Ye- Yeoh has and always will be a force of nature in in the way mm-hmm. she acts and in the way she carries and composes herself and. I mean, I think back to when I was first introduced to her in Croaching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. uh, Easily one of my most favorite movies of all time for its, uh, at the time, kind of an otherworldliness. It's actually helped spark an interest in China that I have all the way up until this very day. Getting to see her, you know, put on the Starfleet uniform, lose it very suddenly, and get a whole brand new take on her character— I think that was sort of while she was on this kind of second resurgence of her of her fame. And we were able to catch her at a good time. And I'm assuming the folks over at Paramount are counting their lucky stars that they probably have something in ink that says that she needs to act for them. <laughs> because at this point, <laughs> I think booking Michelle Yeoh would be a little bit difficult, shall we say. Uh, yeah. the, it, it cannot be helped would have been what they would have said <laughs> um, in that respect. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty excited that we are likely going to see um, Michelle Yeoh come back and reprise her role. That'll be really wonderful because she knows how to steal the steal the spotlight in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, definitely. As far as the series itself goes, I mean, we don't know a lot about it except for the title and the fact that Michelle Yeoh is set to lead it. I'm, in, in, in any case, just really curious with that setup we got in Discovery and her stepping through the Guardian of Forever with I actually kind of always laugh a little bit at the dialogue in this scene where Carl, the personification of the the Guardian of Forever is totally giving like the pitch for a series where he's like, you'll meet new characters and you'll have new adventures and it won't all be blah. blah. I'm like, Okay, this is very fourth wall breaking here. I feel like I'm in an elevator with the writers and I'm a producer and they're they're giving me the pitch here.
2: And so and so will might come along to help sometimes. Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> exactly. Um, and it was supposed to be this very heartfelt moment, right? That 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 whole piece. I don't know if if it happens it's good. I guess like you're right like we have a like a glut of Star Trek coming anyways, so I'm not again in any like, serious like, rush and stuff. I know some people really like sec- Section 31. Obviously, I'm a fan of Michelle Yeoh's, but um, make sure you've uh, got that contract handy because I think she might be hard to book.
1: Well, let's move on to another corner of the Star Trek universe on television, Star Trek Lower Decks. Uh, we had a recent interview with uh, Mike McMahon on the Trek Talks Two fundraiser event, and uh, some hints here and there as to what's going on with season four, for good or for ill, depending on some of your, you know, opinions on uh, season three, which, overall, I really loved. There's one episode though that I think is, I've I've seen people love it, <laughs> and I've seen people absolutely loathe it. And I haven't seen a lot of in-between. <laughs> is it the bird one? It's the bird one. <laughs> yeah. A mathematically perfect redemption with, uh, and I'm putting in, these quotes are doing a lot of heavy lifting here. The fan favorite peanut hamper. And peanut hamper apparently is coming back at oh, some point.
2: Oh, oh, oh man.
1: <laughs> so I don't know how people are going to feel about that. <laughs> the, I just,
2: I, the high concept Self-indulgence of that episode is just, Mm -hmm. I I guess it's like, we panned George Lucas when he just decided to start finger painting with his own. (laughs) You might have to bleep that out. (laughs) But this was 100% the writers just finger painting the most bizarre story about trying to say, look at how much of a jerk peanut hamper is she's probably mm-hmm. a sociopath you know like that kind of whole probably like, well that's the thing is it's i just but the screaming <laughs> just all of the screaming and and like this like weird almost kind of like you know what it reminded me of was actually the battle for endor it was it was very mm. similar in its in its trying to be this huge thing but it, it, i don't know it kind of kind of went like a mile wide and an inch deep, (laughs) like certainly (laughs) because that was the end. They just had to tumble to the end to be like, yeah, peanut Hamper's a real jerk. (laughs) And that's it. So, Mm. but I'll, I mean, I'd love to see peanut hamper again. We have all like, I guess the only thing that that episode does is it gives us the ability and gives the writers, it gives us the ability to laugh at it and gives the writers like so much material to, to have us laugh at now because they're going to have a lot of fun. Um with that with that whole weird, weird episode. The one thing that does excite me about
1: Peanut Hamper's return is that will surely be also the return of Agamus, voiced by Jeffrey Combs, uh that we saw, you know, Peanut Hamper teaming up with at the end there. Uh so that has me excited. I mean, you know, that wasn't ah, uh, I you know, okay, a mathematically perfect redemption. I do have to applaud it just for like the ambition, I guess, to just go for it and put it on like, okay, wow, they
2: just did that. Okay, wow. I'm not going to say they didn't hit the mark with it, but it is kind of like, I don't know, I, I'm i a big fan of music. I love music. And actually, if folks, if you, if you can find them, um, there's another podcast out there called No Dogs in Space, and it's hosted by a guy named Marcus Parks uh, and Carolina Hidalgo, their uh, husband and wife duo who come from their own, like, podcasting pedigree. They are both professionals and good in their own rights, and you can find out what else they do otherwise elsewhere. But um, they talk about, like, when sometimes stars, like, zig when they should have zagged. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it's absolutely catastrophic. Um, And and, and then other times you're just kind of like, oh, huh and and you kind of move on i feel like it is that sort of idea of like a band that we've sort of seen they they've kind of got this whole idea and then they just come out with this completely different concept once and then maybe never even return to it ever again um i think that's kind of what happened here is they just sort of decided that they wanted to let loose
1: yeah i'm i'm kind of interested to watch it again just i, I don't know i have <laughs> i've kind of avoided it but just to see, because I don't know. There's, I I think they accomplished whatever it was they were trying to accomplish with it. Absolutely. I just, I'm <laughs>
2: not. I I don't know. I don't know. I can't say much more. It's very high concept. Just right. You yeah. Think of it as that very. Um, it's up there in terms of high concept with um, it it's it's reminiscent of the inner light in the sense that it, it really just. Isn't about Star Trek at all. And then, you know, the character comes to some great realization, right? Picard realizes the value of life itself and about making the most of the world you're in and the people you're with and all that sort of stuff. And Peanut Hamper learns that she can use people to her advantage.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on to some of the other clues that McMahon dropped about season four. Uh, we've got an amazing episode where we go to Orion. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. I'm excited to see that. I mean, you know, tendy content is always very welcome. Mm -hmm. There's a very romantic episode. It's almost like a Valentine's day episode, but I'm not going to reveal if kissing happens in it because it will give away what happens. That's very cryptic. I'm, I can't figure that one out, but I'm interested. Uh, and then there's a wedding in season four. Brace yourself. Get on your wharf wedding attire and look forward to that. The wedding of the season is coming. Hmm. Shax and Tana, maybe, or
2: I guess like I, I do also appreciate how they have kind of broken convention in certain cases. I think um, originally you would have seen the relationships fall in in certain certain binaries and in certain ways. And in this case, we're not really seeing it that way. And I like that. I guess, honestly, with Lower Decks, I've kind of always taken the show very much as it comes. It's been fun. It's enjoyable. I never really got into Rick and Morty very much. And so seeing this whole take on it, like originally people were, I think, were thinking that it was just going to be that cartoon with the Star Trek skin, but it's really come into its own. It's able to Mm -hmm. do high concept stuff like we've seen. So all of those things could also be some kind of funny gotcha too, right? Like who knows, right? Peanut Hamper might get married to Boimler. Who knows? Like that that could 100% actually happen. And then that would just be (laughs) just juice for more jokes in the future that like there would be these hangups where Boimler was married to Peanut Hamper. So he had to go and do something else, right? Like, (laughs) yeah. Absolutely.
1: Well, the other thing that I'm loving about season four is it's going to be the most T'lin filled season. And Tallinn was a character who popped in, in season two. And then we got her joining the Cerritos right at the end of season three. And I love this character. I'm with like the majority of fans out there. It seems that just for whatever reason, love this Vulcan and, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see her interact with the crew and and play
2: off of Tendy's boundless enthusiasm. Yeah, the the good character foils to each other in a lot of ways. I've I really really like Tendy. I'd actually say that Tendy's probably my favorite character in uh, mm-hmm. in Lower Decks. <clears throat> There's a a bit of a doe eyed sweetness to her, but I think you can also tell in a lot of ways she is a very Careful construction of herself in the sense mm-hmm. that I think she could very easily be something else, and she is deciding to be good. And she's everyone's like, Oh, Tendy, you're just so sweet. And she's like, every now and again at these moments where she's like no i'm choosing to be this nice i really like being nice and i choose it um Mm -hmm. and i wonder if maybe that get might get challenged a little bit this way through where people always expect tendy's sweetness and charm to come through but maybe sometimes when it's taken for granted she just decides to turn the other side just to be like here's what you might get you should appreciate the way i act (laughs) Kind of yeah, thing. well,
1: especially with that trip to Orion, you know that that could really be something because we've seen when she's around other Orions, there is this other life that she's left behind, like you, like you're saying there. Yeah. So, she really yeah. bristles
2: at at that thought of being an Orion, too, right?
1: Yeah, and I, I with Tendi, I respond really strongly to passion and enthusiasm Mm -hmm. so I think that's why one of the reasons I love that character so much so she kind of arrives on the Cerritos and acts the way I would if I was stepping onto a Federation starship right 100% so speaking of Lower Decks uh, we've got a nomination for an Annie Award which is from the International Animated Film Society the Lower Decks season 3 finale The Stars at Night was nominated for Best Editorial Uh, So that's pretty cool. Nice little uh, racking up of a nomination there. And we also have uh, nominations for Discovery for NAACP and GLAAD Awards, which I, you know, anytime I see Star Trek on the list for consideration by those groups, I guess get pretty happy like that's the right thing to happen i think
2: it means we're on the side of the angels and i i just really want to put my foot solidly (laughs) down there that that recognizing black indigenous people of color people who express their inborn nature and identify with the lgbtq community and the people who see themselves as allies this is what we expect in our entertainment. This is not something that we're happy to see. This is something that we can be happy to see, but this is not something that should be surprising. I think as much as I value it and want it to continue, I think to some degree, we should be talking about this and we should be bringing this up. And I guess like, I don't know. I don't want to gloat and I or anything like that, but at the same time it feels pretty good. And it makes me very happy that Star Trek has again, much like Tendi, chosen this direction. And I think it has a lot to do with the fan base and our influence in that regard.
1: Yeah, and, and for example, for the for the GLAD award uh for outstanding drama series that it's being nominated for, uh, I, I I love the idea and, and there's kind of an inherent competition when it comes to awards. Uh, for example, this article on trekmovie.com says it's going up against 911 Lone Star, Chucky, Good Trouble, Gossip Girl, Grey's Anatomy, The L Word, Generation Q, P Valley, September Mornings, and The Umbrella Academy. I would reword that slightly to say it's not going up against them. It's honored to be included amongst this group. And one of them's going to win, but. You know, just recognizing this amazing, huge group of shows that are finally kind of representing humanity in the colorful ways that humanity is. You know, like I, I love that. I think that's great, and that Star Trek is among them. Finally,
2: right? <laughs> it's important to be at the table at this, and and to to be there as a supporter of of all of that is is really important to me and you know obviously there's sometimes people say like well you know marketing is not the same as emancipation and representation is not the same as liberation i would 100% agree with that and and see that but the good part is is those people those would be liberators who who are growing up seeing themselves reflected in the tv shows that they're watching here's hoping that that is what gives them that extra shot in the arm to move forward and you know, demand those rights that they deserve and keep demanding them because they're still under an extreme amount of threat. So yeah, this is wonderful news.
1: Uh, And for the NAACP uh, award, Star Trek Discovery was nominated for Outstanding Costume Design in Film or Television uh, with their incredible team led by the amazing Gersha Phillips, incredible costume designer, and uh, the rest of her team, Carly Nicodemo, Heather Constable, Christina Cattle, Cheryl willock and Becky McKinnon. Uh, So that's awesome. They're going up against Emancipation, The Woman King, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and A League of Their Own. So yeah, costume design. I think personally Wakanda Forever is going to be a tough contender there. That'd be a toughie. And, uh, so next, uh, this is one of my favorite news stories to come out of this week because so we've gotten several autobiographies over the past few years of various Star Trek characters. We've had Kirk, we've had Picard, we've had Janeway and Spock, and now we are getting the autobiography of Benjamin Sisko, the life of Starfleet's legendary captain and emissary written, of course... By the man himself, Benjamin Sisko. It's an autobiography <laughs> and edited by Derek Tyler Attico. And when I saw this announcement, Derek himself made it on social media. Yeah. I was so thrilled because he is absolutely the right person for this job. And I... I don't know the exact chain of events of how this all went there, but I remember there was a post like a year or two ago, somebody asked like, oh, if somebody was going to do Cisco's biography, who should do it? And I immediately in that post suggested Derek Tyler Attico and tagged him and he saw
2: it and was like,
1: oh, I would love to do that, blah, blah, blah. So
2: this is your doing?
1: I don't think so, but for whatever spark went out in the universe, I'm so glad that it came to be, regardless of how it came to be. That's exactly what I wanted to see, and I'm so, so happy for Derek, and uh, I'm very excited.
2: 100% <laughs> full agreement. The first thing I thought in my head was, I, I read this headline but did not know anything more about it. I just knew that there was going to be a Cisco book, and I was great. And I'm like, oh, you know, let's hope, like, at the very least, let's hope they, they get a, a black author to do this um, because they're going to be able to capture that, that cultural vibe that, that um, Avery Brooks was able to bring um, with mm-hmm. everything. And I was like, oh, goodness, oh, no. And then I just quickly looked and I'm like, Derek Tyler Attico, we're good, everybody. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yep, absolutely. Like, perfect man for the job. <laughs> absolutely perfect. I can't wait to read this. Yeah, no, this is getting bumped up the list. I'm going to I'm gonna read this one right away.
1: Excellent. Well, yeah, Derek Tyler Attico, a two-time winner of the Strange New World's writing contest, the short story contest. Uh, the first story of his, I think it was in number eight, was called Alpha and Omega, and it is just a mind-blowing story about, I, I can't even tell you what it's about. You need to go read that story. And then in this strange new world's 2016 edition that came out, the ebook, uh, he won for a story about Benny Russell. Which when I read that, I was like, "That's the man that needs to do the autobiography of Benjamin Sisko." And here we are! Yay! I'm so like you can hear the giddiness in my voice. I'm so excited. Oh, the story of the story <laughs> of Benny
2: Russell is is the is the compendium too far beyond the stars to me. It's, uh, it's an extremely uh, visceral portrayal, um, something that, that myself as a, as a white settler (laughs) could never possibly experience, but it definitely gives me even just a fragment of context and, and a background to ensure that, that, you know, I'm always going to be looking at things through that critical lens to push more of a, of an empathetic, um, an empathetic outlook and something that that is important about all of this is that kind of anti-racist sentiment that comes from the story of benjamin cisco so i'm really excited really excited to see this yeah and we'll
1: be uh covering that for sure on an upcoming episode of the positively Trek book club and hopefully talking to derek tyler attico himself about it so I,
2: i'm very excited if that <laughs> happens i will i will buy you a pizza if i can be on it <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, done. (laughs) Okay, good. All right, there you go. (laughs) Not
1: just for the pizza. A verbal contract is legally (laughs) binding. (laughs) Excellent. Well, our final piece of news this week is just a small story I wanted to touch on because, of course, one of the big things in Star Trek uh, merchandising and fandom last year was the end of Eagle Moss and the, the official Starships collection and all of their other kind of things they had their their fingers in as far as the build the enterprise thing and all that stuff uh, so we've had some news on that there's a company called d collectibles which may be a name familiar to star trek fans uh, they have a, a line of products called fan home which will be taking over the build the enterprise d program uh, according to ben robinson uh, fans should be able to pick up wherever they left off Uh, Hopefully that all kind of comes together. It sounds like that's going on uh, with pricing close to the original pricing that was offered before. I myself never got into the Build the Enterprise D thing, but there are a lot of fans out there with, you know, partially built enterprises that were kind of left hanging. So glad to see that uh, something's being done with that and that those fans will likely be seeing satisfaction for that.
2: Here's hoping the the demise of Eagle Moss was jarring and abrupt, to say the least. And also, I wondered, you know, like being a person who teaches economics and, and stuff like that, there is the concept of use, exchange and sign value. And sometimes that use value and exchange value get outpaced by the sign value of something. And when you're building commodities in a, in our case, a neoliberal capitalist system, you're going to need to cut a profit. And if you're not cutting a reasonable profit, you will lose shareholders and you will lose all those uh, other things that can keep your business going. So I'm not going to say necessarily that's precisely what happened to Eagle Moss, but obviously a lot of confidence was lost in that company extremely quickly. And now it's gone. And, As much as we Star Trek fans aren't buying ships every single day, it was nice to be able to just pop on a website and be like, I want the Bozeman and be able to find it or to subscribe to something and get sort of that that jolt of excitement to be able to see those ships and and get the different sizes in them. And and obviously they become good conversation pieces. I've I've got a number in my office. So I guess it's nice to see something coming of this. And and with regards to the Star Trek
1: Starships collection as well, uh, there is another group, Master Replicas, that have apparently taken the stock from Eagle Moss and will be selling those ships as well. So those will find their way into collector's hands. Uh, no word on anybody taking up the mantle for creating new ships yet. That might still happen. I don't know. I think Eagle Moss was a very singular thing in star trek merchandise history and i don't expect to quite see it's like again but uh i may be surprised you never know
2: i just wonder where the mold plates are for the ships Hmm. what company has those what what holding you know i mean i would i would suspect possibly um a factory in one of the special economic regions in the people's republic of china would likely have some of those molds um so would it would it be possible yeah for a company to get enough interest to do a maybe more of a limited run of those those models and get a certain amount of interest and, and maybe not not try to reach the same heights as Eagle Moss was trying to reach. I think they were really trying to just go and go and get higher and higher. And I think they kind of blew up like a firework. So something a little more slow and sustained might be the way to go uh, in terms of business model that might not make things as affordable, but uh, who knows?
1: Yeah. And I mean, we may not get things like a, a Zindian insectoid ship <laughs> but, you know, uh, there's so, so many specialized things they did. I, I, I can't see that quite happening again. I, I remember being shocked at some of the, like, I have the, the hollow ship from Star Trek Insurrection and <laughs> I love it, but wh- why, why, why? <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, they flew a little
2: too close to the sun. They were, they were getting, they were getting pretty specific. Yeah, no kidding,
1: but there was a market for it. I I don't know if that market is still there or what, but I I don't know. Anyway, I'm not in that business, so I can't really say, but uh, excited that, uh, that stock that they have will find its way into collector's hands. And, uh, there's still hope that someone might take over creating new models. So you never know. Well, on that note, let's, uh, take a brief break and we'll come back and talk Star Trek Prodigy. This episode of Positively Trek would not be possible without the support of those of you who have gone to patreon.com slash positivelytrek and signed up to become a patreon supporter of the show thank you all so very much for your donations they truly do help bring this show to you each week thank you especially to our constitution class supporters Joyce Marin, Jim Stoffel, Jesse Earle, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, and Paul D. Kinnear. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show, go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You can get perks such as early access to episodes, ad-free versions of episodes, exclusive content, shout-outs, associate producer credits, and much more. Once again, that's patreon.com slash positivelytrek. Thank you all once again. And now, let's get back to the show. So last flagship episode, we were talking Star Trek Prodigy and the conversation just became too big for that episode. So here's the spilling over into another episode talking about Prodigy, which I'm really glad we decided to do that because I feel like this show deserves a double episode because just on the face of it, it's double the number of episodes that most seasons of Star Trek have been getting in the last few years.
2: So kind of makes sense. (laughs) I think so. And and I think it it deserves a little bit more of a conversation. And I honestly don't think we're going to get to literally everything this time around either, to be perfectly honest with you, Dan. Um, Just even thinking about what we've got written here, kind of just sort of obliquely on the notes. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. So I think we just dive right back in from, from where we uh, from where we left off last time. I think we were kind of getting into the characters and whatnot was the last piece. Yeah, we kind of did a pretty good overview of all of the characters. And I, I think
1: we were kind of wanting to get into more of the, the story of the season and the, the overview of the whole series and Right. kind of our thoughts on season one and stuff. So I see you've got here kind of a topic about the overall writing of the season with the this kind of season-wide setup. Why don't you go into a little bit about that, about what you're uh, yeah. interested in there?
2: Yeah, so I think what I really liked about this, is, and, and I don't know if you wrote that or I wrote that, but the, the whole story has a series of phases. And I can kind of locate those phases to what condition murph is in <laughs> but uh, <laughs> sort of
1: it's like tng does riker have the beard or not are they wearing the
2: jumpsuits or not? <laughs> does murph have limbs <laughs> um but it is it is kind of a it's it's a several different stories very well meshed together, or at least they kind of intertwine with one another. And I find the culmination works well. I think the story story writing really tried to be ambitious, I think, in, in the most part. And I think they they sacrifice scientific accuracy in certain places, yet also still trying to really kind of get kids to think about how time works, right, is, is the one big thing that I, I really appreciate is, um, do you think we've seen the last of the Diviner by any stretch of the imagination, Dan? Oh, heavens no. no. <laughs> right? Like, we're <laughs> yeah. going to see a younger form of him, for sure. And spoiler alert, blah, I forgot to mention that. Anyways, um, I, I would imagine that if you're on part two of this episode, you've, you've already realized that we are going roughshod through all spoilers whatsoever. So, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um I think that there were plot points that kind of came and went really fast. Um forgive me my my accuracy isn't exactly perfect. But when Dal um has that that uh, that implant where he can start accessing some of his genetic traits, but it's like abandoned like seconds later. Like I think in that respect Maybe what they're trying to do is just give a precedent for something that we'll return to later. But there was a lot of freneticness and franticness that I found that kind of tumbled the ending a little bit. Um, Not really a critique. Um, There was a lot of sort of kid show, um, like, again, Murph accidentally shooting at Starfleet um, to kind of postpone any chance of real explanation until later on kind of thing. I think that there were some kind of tropey pieces. Again, kind of you and I were talking about how the Diviner is kind of a Darth Vadery guy a little bit, the way he sacrifices himself um, ultimately for the love of his child rather than what, you know, the, the purpose he's serving, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I'm really just trying to fly through a number of things. It's still a kid's show, but I wanted to to maybe also talk a little bit about that ending and just the amount of carnage would have had to have happened. Um, and then maybe we can, yeah, we'll, we'll get into other things and what that might mean for us later. But back to the writing, I think though they cover so much space and so much time, I think that when you go back to the entire the entirety of the show from beginning to end, it's a very complicated plot that I think really challenges the mind of a young person if they were to watch it in terms of um, characterization uh, in terms of the way people are, in um, the fact that humans really aren't the center of this story, it's nothing like the the bird episode on um, on Lower <laughs> Decks, but it is a very no. high concept story arc and idea all together, right? Even the fact that like at the first point I was like, oh, isn't that cute? There's a holographic Janeway, la, 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 la. And then actual Janeway shows up and they, <laughs> it's this whole thing, right? That is yeah. that is pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I you've made a lot of really, really great points there. I love the idea that this show challenges its viewers. You know, it, it could be something that really plays it safe and really handholds, the watcher through everything. But I I think they've done a really good job of actually crafting a dynamic story that like you say, has some tropy bits, has some allowances for a younger audience, but at the same time, these characters are dynamic. They're changing from episode to episode. Yeah. <laughs> they're going through some real stuff and coming out the other side, having grown, which I, again, like not to keep harping on this point, but as someone who grew up in the 80s and 90s, I am not used to that as far as a kids show goes. Like, I mean, there were some great kids shows on when I was a kid, but not really in this same vein, or at least none of the shows that I watched. You know, I watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the real Ghostbusters. And that was just, you know, what are they going up against this week? What quips is Peter Venkman going to make about this situation you know it was it was very much just kind of wrote great stories great acting and all that stuff but you could watch an episode in season four and then an episode in season two and you would have no idea that you know the one you watched first actually came two years after the other one this series there's no way that you could do that without
2: the context of where that episode takes place and that's just one season Again, it's not it's not unique or new necessarily. I mean, I think Rock's story and um, the the kind of the premise behind the story of Shrek are very similar to mm, one another. Mm-hmm. That the monster is in fact and can sometimes be the hero. Uh, you just need to get to know them a little bit better. And and sometimes if they're going to be prickly or or you know evasive or standoffish about something, maybe it's because of the fact that they are very aware of what they're quote-unquote supposed to be and what they're quote-unquote supposed to be doing. I really like that because... I think there's a lot of kids sometimes that really feel like they're getting pigeonholed into a specific thing. And I mean, some kids own that and become, you know, make that part of their identity. But I do see um, young people who try to, to push against that and explore a little bit more about who they are and see maybe what could be a stereotypical or very visible aspect of them. Um, to be something more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess like you can kind of look at the concept of Encanto too, if you've seen that Disney movie yeah. and uh, the oldest sister, the one who can lift everything, right? Um, she's far more than that, yeah. uh, than what she, what she, Luisa, she's right? sort of characterized. Yeah, Luisa. Thank you. What she's characterized to be. I forget even what we were talking about. It's just interesting to, to kind of like delve into how these characters have been put together. And yeah, I guess the way they, they challenge young people, like there's points that I don't like doll right like he makes some really bad choices in certain cases and kind of has to live with those and and the fact that that we have a, you know not really a redemption arc for him but but sort of like a you're not going to be in starfleet but that doesn't mean you're not going to be a part of starfleet and the fact that he has to really come to terms with that up to the very very end of this whole experience. Because that's what I'm going to call the last episodes. <laughs> they're, they're just sort of a big experience, I found, that so much happens. Mm-hmm. And a lot of tables get turned very quickly. And like I said, uh, Dan, do you think a lot of people died in that last big kind of thing?
1: Yeah, that that's something I, I wanted to talk about, because that's one thing that... I mean, the show deals with a lot of heavy stuff with, uh, the kids at the start being what, uh, a certain character in Thor Ragnarok would call prisoners with jobs. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is one of my new favorite euphemisms, but, Uh, You know, so there's, there's heavy stuff and there's obviously mistreatments and obviously there's, there's death, but it's not really focused on. And then, yeah, you get to the end of the series and, you know, credit to the show, they could have just shown the ships from the outside and, and, you know, made it very hands off. But there were a few shots where they show like people inside the ships and, you know, walls kind of exploding and things happening around them and, yeah, like a lot of those, a lot of people died. There's a lot of destroyed ships at the end, not just disabled ships or ships with some damage. No, there's like warp nacelles and parts of hull
2: floating by. Yeah, it's another Wolf 359. And and uh, to, to kind of put that into a bit of perspective, there is the lightning in a bottle uh, gigantic toy commercial known as the Transformers animated movie mm, mm-hmm. that starts with, for me, what was it? terrifying scene when Unicron comes and eats that planet of robots and you got the children playing and that <laughs> <and the laughs> <laughs> like coming and, and he comes and just, just starts eating this planet and people are getting sucked in and, and people are screaming and crying and you see them getting like digested and chomped up. And like, it's, it's a very moving scene for me as a very young person. I would actually sometimes when I was really little, get my mom to fast forward past it. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't take that, that scene. And I, and I wonder how a young person would handle it uh, to some degree because, you know, though of course in the transformers movie, you don't really necessarily see a robot one of the little robot people get like specifically like eviscerated by Unicron. You can do the math and I think it's the same way here. And yeah, you're right. The show does an extremely good job of how they approach a disastrous moment like that, but it doesn't take away the reality of it. Yeah, it's given appropriate weight, I
1: think. Yeah. Like it's not just like, oh, this is a problem we have to overcome. What's going on here? It's like they're looking at what's happening and realizing that It's really bad. Yeah. And and <laughs> and for better or for worse, like however much blame you want to assign to anybody, certainly they feel that they have brought this horrific event to Starfleet's door and they have to do something about it. And that's given, like I say, the weight I think it deserves. Like I, I I really appreciate that you can see it on their faces that they know that horrific things are happening. And on some level, maybe it's not because of them. They're not the ones that, that have maliciously done this, but if it weren't for them, this might not be happening in this way right now kind of thing. Also
2: the way in which things break down. Starfleet really does hang its hat on some technological constants, right? If you're in a gigantic ship in space moving in a form of faster than light travel, a lot of things need to be accounted for. There's a whole uh, spectrum of responsibility, shall we say, to, to doing that and operating such a complicated piece of technology in space. And for those things to break down, even to the le- to the level of a universal translator, for me is just terrifying. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the sun will belch a solar flare towards Earth, and it can actually affect uh, electronics, electronic systems, all that sort of stuff. And um, that's always kind of a fearful thing. And then, of course, you understand that like different types of nuclear blasts and and hybridized nuclear blasts as like conventional weaponry can even do that to, say, like a city or something like that. Um, Did you hear about that? Um, I forget what had happened. There was some kind of natural disaster. I think it was an earthquake in China. And a plane, they basically flew a Wi-Fi plane over top of the city 24-7, switching out planes, just to broadcast internet signal down so that people could help each other and, you know, communicate with one another. And there's precedent for that in other countries as well. I just remember reading that... um, um, cause a student was doing, uh, some kind of project I can't remember on, on telecommunication and, and that was something that they brought up. And I just mm-hmm. thought like, you know, why don't we hear more about that, about like what happens if the lights go, especially here at like minus 40, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, as, as someone who's looked into things like supply chains and stuff and where we live, like we're, we're pretty far North and this is the case for our city, but it's also not just limited to remoter places. It's, it's also a constant for everywhere. If the trucks don't run for one day, that city will run out of food. That's how our supply chains work. Like that's not, <laughs> we've, we've sacrificed- yeah sorry, this is almost like a total tangent rant here, but, but we have completely sacrificed the robustness of those, these things for the convenience of them. And it's, uh, yeah, it's scary. Like, and it's obviously something that is very much on a lot of people's minds and in media and in, in pop culture. I mean, uh, Nikki and I have just started watching The Last of Us and that is Mm. terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> it's and yeah. I mean well that's why we find those kinds of stories so compelling. It's yeah. uh it's scary and it's it's very real and possible. I mean the early days of the COVID pandemic, I mean we weren't sure where things were gonna go. It could have easily yeah. gone one ship gets stuck sideways in the Suez Canal. You, know? <laughs> like, <laughs> you get a perfect storm right? of three different things happening and all of a sudden uh, the world's
2: running out of microchips or something. You know, it's it's wild. Well, and and yeah, you and what you're re- referencing is just-in-time infrastructure. It's how our medical system works. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely, a lot of our uh, commodity and and food uh, um, infrastructure is based on that just-in-time. So you're right. If things stop briefly, they can really have a lasting and larger effect yeah. on the supply of other things. And so bas- back to it is, is just the fact that, that the way in which that weapon was utilized was to create a cascading phenomenon, right, of, of failures. And to think about that is, is very scary because I think to some degree, you know, we have that much in common with the Federation and Starfleet that, um, we've really put our chips in on the way our technology works. And if there was some kind of cascading failure, um, it would, it would be big. It would be really big. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And
1: one thing that, kind of fascinated me too about this is the entity that brought this about or the the construct that brought this about the The the, living the living construct yeah and i i find myself thinking like the writers are are of modern star trek are very frightened of ai or feel that there's a lot to talk about with regards uh to ai which they're not wrong first of all uh, I think there's a lot of things to be very wary about. Uh, I, I think of you know my household and and my wife. Her livelihood relies upon creativity and artistic works, and now all of a sudden we have AI art. Which <laughs> there's a lot of artists out there going like, uh, "Excuse me," but what is what is this fascination with? AI bringing about the end of everything because we've got the living construct and prodigy. We had the control section 31 control kind of, trying to get its hands on the sphere data to end all of life in season two of Discovery. And we had the kind of Lovecraftian AI nightmare at the end of Picard season one. Like this definitely seems to be something that's very much on the minds of a lot of modern Trek writers.
2: Well, I would say that this is actually a pedigree of Trek writers, right? You go back to Nomad and Mm, mm -hmm. V'ger. You you definitely have a precedent for this idea of an AI that is kind of interested in annihilating its creator slash it has some kind of bone to pick with us and 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 i think if you if we're gonna get if we're gonna get in the weeds here i think there's a philosophical aspect to this in the sense that what we fear is that ai is not necessarily just going to see us as some pathetic you know being worthy of kind of pity or whatever else, but see that nature within us to destroy and to, to take over and to enslave uh, and do all these terrible things. And and I think it's a little bit telling in that respect of um, what backgrounds the people who are making the AI have, because I think it, it does sort of preclude the idea that if AI is created by people with, um, you know, backgrounds towards that, that sort of thinking, um, then that's how the AI is going to act. Because I, I guess like for me, uh, I read a really interesting book by a guy by the name of Greg Graffin a ways back called Population Wars, and he basically talks about how the concept of survival of the fittest is not even really something that most zoologists and, and biologists really even think with anymore. It's it's about symbiotics. It's about um, incorporation, um, the idea that within our genetic code we have uh, in a, a large amount of fo- basically fossilized viruses that that so in, in included themselves within us that we've just basically fully incorporated. And, and the idea that it's through the symbiosis of different species that uh, entire ecosystems are uh, held up. And so sometimes... I think that maybe what that really is, is the writers looking at what artificial intelligence could potentially do based on what we could, what we could see in our darker elements. But what for me is saying like, could AI also instead say, no, I am um, actually still going to use a form of force, um, but in this respect, I'm going to make sure that this force is to force people to work together more readily um, and and all that sort of stuff. So you're right. There's definitely a precedent for AI bad, AI scary. I don't know. I think it depends on how you program it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And, and your point about past Star Trek as well, dabbling in this, I mean, you could even look at lore and the Borg. Like and and that final point you made ai forcing people to cooperate and work together is that the borg like that sounds <laughs> that could be the borg like could be something that feels very or or sounds very altruistic and in the case of the borg if you look at it from their perspective they're bringing order to chaos right there's there's all these chaotic species Let's bring them all under our aegis and have them work towards the common goal of perfection.
2: Well, but also, like, hasn't the Borg and the Federation often been compared as sort of like um, the polar opposites of one another mm-hmm. or like two sides of the same coin in the sense that like to some, you know, the Borg and the Federation really aren't very different at all. The Federation just decorates itself with all this culture. Mm-hmm. The Borg do away with it. Um, for the sake of efficiency, right? Mr. Eddington, Um, I see. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Um, I guess for me yeah it it definitely treads on some some regular tropes like we've seen before but i think it's it's utilized in a slightly different way it it actually kind of reminds me of what they were planning to do to Hugh with the borg Mm -hmm. right just like complicate all the programs to the point that they become redundant and destroy themselves
1: yeah that makes sense and uh yeah the the kind of reverse of that that's interesting i i like that comparison for sure so yeah the a new wolf 359 for starfleet it looks like here i'd be interested to See if there's any kind of follow up on this or any kind of mention of it. I mean, we know that the Enterprise E was there at least a ship Mm -hmm. that had that on the, on the nacelle. Uh, It had a different registry on the front, but we'll just ignore that. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Defiant was there, the USS Defiant. So, you know, there's some big players here, or at least some former big players uh, on on the scene. So this was a big event for Starfleet, I think. Well, uh, one topic you have on here that I want to dive into, we talked a lot about the characters last episode, but I love this idea. What character do you most relate to? And I I think there's a lot of value in that discussion because like I kind of said last episode, each of them have traits here and there that you kind of recognize in yourself or one recognizes in oneself watching the show. And I I think, you know, very much on purpose, very much meaning to connect with an audience and, and provide them with uh, examples or, uh, you know, lessons taught via people who are, maybe like the viewer going through some life-changing situations. So what character, Barry, do you most relate to in Star Trek Prodigy?
2: Yeah, and it changed. It changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Initially, it was dull. I kind of really sort of had this like super soft spot for for Rock for a while, but I finished off by saying zero, and it had to do with all those like kind of cool little bit of backstories you get, right, kind of in the chaos and calamity of those last seasonal episodes kind of getting that having seeing those characters now with their backstories intact really helped kind of flesh out a lot about them and you know more than meets the eye to kind of go back to transformers again is kind of the big thing about all of them is is they are all very dynamic flawed um i like zero probably the most um mainly just because it it really does sort of show me like it's i know i know zero is actually a being but But by having a corporeal form, it's sort of like a living embodiment of a being with a soul to me in some cases. Mm. I like the fact that they do away with any kind of concept of gender. How can you be? Uh, a gender in that respect I think that's really neat and I think that helps young people to think of it as that concept right they they bend gender and they bend time in this and both things are human constructs capable of bending um, which I think is really fascinating so I think that's really a big piece of it, but also like Zero's just kind of obsessive interests. I typically get obsessive interests. I was telling you before we started, I listened to a lecture this morning just for like recreational purposes and wrote five pages of notes. So yeah, that's kind of where I would go. How about yourself?
1: I, I very much agree with a lot of what you said. There's a lot of various traits among the characters that at one point or another, I'm kind of like, oh, I've gone through that. I've, I've been misunderstood like that. I've, Hidden how I really feel about things and taken out my aggression in private, like Jankum Pog did and, uh, Dal and, and his kind of wanting to switch off and tune out rather than confront some thing that's happening that needs his attention and stuff. Ultimately... Uh, I'm, I'm kind of going to be a bit boring and, and say for myself, it's, it's zero as well. <laughs> and earlier in the show, during the new segment, I was talking about how Tendi really, like I really connect with Tendi because of the passion and enthusiasm. And I see that same, those same qualities in zero peeking into every corner of the universe and just the awe with which they, they experience it. Uh, and then. What solidified it for me, what what locked it in place was that holodeck episode where we see that they are uh, engaging in this mystery solving club and they go in there and try and solve mysteries and follow little clues. And I I love that stuff. You know, murder mystery parties or escape rooms or, you know, just things where you really have to kind of analyze things and dive deep and look at things in new and different ways. I, I really... Like I was like, oh, I would be in there with Zero, right alongside them, solving these mysteries. I love that.
2: Absolutely, I, I and I agree with you. And I mean, like, I don't want to necessarily say that other characters didn't, yeah, didn't strike me in certain ways, but yeah, Zero just really kind of stands out to me as as the character. And and your connection to Tandy, I hadn't even thought of, and now I'm like, swat th- my forehead and <laughs> duh. Absolutely, yeah. It's that um <clears throat> there's an unabashedness. There is an intentionality. A lot of people have really liked and, and, and clung on to like a character like Murph, right? Mm. Um which I understand. Uh I, I like I like Pog. I guess like Pog didn't really strike me as much as some of the other characters personally, but yeah. that's again just sort of a personal thing. Uh, and like I said, Dahl actually I enjoyed because Dahl gave me something to dislike sometimes too. Like his character wasn't always the best. And I like Gwen's story and I think that's probably what we're going to see a lot more of next season. At least that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. Well, let's uh jump into that then. So, looking ahead to season 2,
1: uh what are we expecting to see, what would we like to see with the uh, with this these kids becoming warrant officers in training in Starfleet? Uh they they can't go to the academy. But they'll be training alongside Janeway on some ship, which I have theories about. But uh, yeah, I don't know what. What do you want to see in season two?
2: I don't want to see any main characters die, but I have a fear that one mm,
1: will. That makes I
2: that makes me sad. I don't want that. <laughs> yeah, I think they might try to sacrifice a main character, and I don't know why I have that feeling other than just the way. Should I say anything? I don't know. Should I even like bring it into the world? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, let me just say, maybe I'll say it off, off, off mic later, then we can talk about it. But I, I have this weird prediction and it just has a lot to do with the way the story went and everything else. And and it would, be, it would be within the, the tropes of a character who has done so much to kind of distance themselves from their stereotype, ultimately having to use their stereotype to save everybody else.
1: Ooh, interesting. Okay. we'll we'll talk after. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious. Like you say, I think Gwyn's story is going to play heavily into season two. Obviously they're setting up that she's going out to kind of forestall this future from happening and, and stop this civil war on her planet. Like I said, warrant officers in training. We've got a bunch of young O'Briens, non-commissioned officers, or maybe acting ensigns like Wesley in season one and two and three of TNG or something like that.
2: I don't know. They're going to have their cake and eat it too, Mm -hmm. right? You can't be in Starfleet, but you can be in Starfleet, but you can't be in Starfleet, but you can be in Starfleet. And I don't know. I guess like it's a kid's show and that's fine, but maybe not this time. Like, I don't know, just make them officers. (laughs) I would honestly say just whatever, it's okay. I'd mentioned a number of sort of like scientists and physicists and stuff like that. Um, and, and was just mentioning to Dan about a a possible idea for another episode. And and there was one specific person named Jack Parsons, who was one of the founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, he got kicked out of like formal training. Like he never had a degree Mm. or anything, but he knew how to build jets, you know, it's that kind of thing. So it's like, there are points in times when those funny little pieces of paper and those flaming hoops, they get you to jump through to get them. Sometimes there is a possibility that someone can just be that good or go through a certain series of experiences. Uh, if I could tangent just for like a hot minute, um, it, it really actually kind of boils down to how we have knowledge uh, about history and the land and everything like that, where uh, you know a scientist and a biologist is going to have a lot of extremely good points of view, um, ways to look at things, but that doesn't mean that we can't look at. The, the, the viewpoints and perspectives and advice from say indigenous elders mm-hmm. right they might not necessarily have a funny sheet of paper but they have a uh, an amazing amount of of knowledge of a group of from a group of people who sophisticatedly uh, lived and managed the the biosphere in this area for an extremely long period of time so I do feel like there are times when Finding pieces of paper and credentials can actually get in the way. Yeah, um, and that's coming from an educator's perspective.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and I mean that, that's O'Brien to a T as well. The right, you know, the every man who just is an amazing engineer can turn rocks into replicators, right? As they say. <laughs> Yeah. Um. I actually, I love that they're not in the Academy and that they're going to be, you know, basically enlisted crewmen, uh, which is again, like a side of Starfleet we've not seen very much of. And I love the, the story of how that came about. David Mack, who worked as a consultant during season one of Prodigy, uh, the original plan was they would get into the Academy at the end of season one. And David Mack basically said, you know, think back to TNG and how hard it was for Wesley Crusher to get into the academy. He had to take this test and he he didn't get in the first time, even though he aced pretty much everything, you know, these are spots in the academy that are really hard to get into and the idea of just kind of ushering in this group ahead of what must be a miles long waiting list sorry, kilometers long waiting list. We're in Canada and this is set in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it, it, It would be unfair. So they kind of played with the idea for a bit and decided on this this kind of warrant officers in training thing, which had the added benefit of them not stepping on the toes of the still upcoming Starfleet Academy series as well, as they said. So uh, that's kind of cool. I, I think it's neat and it, it's a way to stretch the writers into doing something different that rather than just, again, like this show does. Uh it doesn't do the expected thing. It does something no. a little different. And I love that.
2: Yeah, I I guess like more more than anything, what I wanna see is more risks being taken in the next season. Like they took risks, even if they don't fully land all the time. Like this hasn't been like a, a perfect series that's like, you know, I would I would personally say that the the overall writing of lower decks has been my absolute favorite of all of the Star Trek currently. Uh, in existence. That's not to say I didn't enjoy Prodigy. I, I have to say it uh, it's actually kind of bumped a few others in terms of my, my favorites now mm-hmm. and is something that I want to watch with, uh, with young people uh, who I share my life with now and everything. I think that would be pretty cool. Uh, and I think it would be a very accessible way into Star Trek for them. I think what this show does is it gives an entry point that's accessible. Um, it doesn't necessarily require you to really get into other Star Trek for the sake of it but I think if you were to encounter an episode of Star Trek I think you would be charmed by how much you would recognize Mm -hmm. Um, and it's really hard to go into all the references Lower Decks is also extremely good at just a a constant barrage of of little minor references here and there but predictions uh, moving ahead I wonder if they're going to do something with the supernova and the destruction of Romulus Hmm, that would be interesting
1: and something we've seen you know other star trek series that are currently airing
2: kind of tie themselves to a little bit so well keith d candito uh, i have to give uh, credit to is the author of a uh of a of a article on that he's very critical of, of prodigy otherwise i didn't agree with a lot of what he had to say in terms of uh um, he was quite critical of the, the writing and the acting and stuff like that, which is allowed. Um, I just personally, if you want to read a critique, go to him. Uh, if you want to read something a little less than a negative critique, um, we're we're here and and we I definitely liked this mm-hmm. way more than than any of the the little writing bits that I was like oh kids show but that's the thing is it's a kids show so if you found some of the writing simplistic it's because it's supposed to be accessible for people who are like ten mm-hmm. so <laughs> yeah I <laughs> like, mean come on <laughs> there's
1: some things like they rounded the corners of the Borg a little bit and things like that I mean but it's a kids show you know they that's fine.
2: well i mean then you'd have to do the same math for clone wars right Mm -hmm. it was geared for a younger audience so it's gonna be a little more slapstick it's gonna be a little more whatever like it's gonna be a little more fun like that so so okay don't worry about it definitely section 31 is coming you'll be fine yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure you'll get all
1: of your really dark gritty stuff that yeah anyway (laughs) uh yeah i'll i'll close out i guess too by by saying like um predictions for season two, I th- I think, uh, this is going to become a totally different show than it was in season one, which is, you know, there's a reason it's not Star Trek protostar, you know, the protostar was blown up at the end of the season. That's not <laughs> the focus of the show. And I love that. Yeah, we're following these characters And they're not stuck in amber in a situation, you know, they're, they're evolving and growing. And, uh, like I said, last week, we're past the video game first stage tutorial part and we're into the real world. Now they're going to be on a real Starfleet ship with real Starfleet rules. And I'm sure there's going to be some really interesting, uh, ways that they brush up against those. And we'll see some conflicts there and, and some growth for these characters in that way. You know, I'm not necessarily one for you know, this solution, I'm, I'm not a militaristic person, but you know, there's that, that old trope of sending the troubled kid to military camp. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be Dal not waking up when he's supposed to at some point and there's hilarity will ensue. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, this past season, I've gone on the record as saying a few times, especially towards the end of the season, it was nudging up into Deep Space 9 levels of enjoyment and appreciation for me, which is the highest praise I think I can give a Star Trek series because the pedestal upon which I place Deep Space 9 is uh, has until this recently has been unprecedented. And there are moments where I'm like, this is giving me those same vibes. And I, it might partially be because I didn't expect that of the show. So it surprised me enough that it did that. But, uh, you know, I wasn't expecting to not enjoy the show by any stretch, but it certainly has exceeded my expectations.
2: If you have stuck with us this far through two parts of Positively Trek and you still haven't seen Star Trek Prodigy... (laughs) definitely you would still really enjoy it even though we basically spoiled almost every plot point point. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and there's a lot more there too that we haven't even touched on i think
2: there's some yeah i mean like for instance i'm thinking to myself i'm like this one really dives into the the world of the Tellarites too mm-hmm. and how they associate with each other and how they socialize and how they use nuances and cues and how some of those nuances and cues being done wrong actually help like make problems worse, you know, like, <laughs> so I, yeah, absolutely. Like I, we could literally talk for another probably half an hour, 45 minutes, um, whatever else. So yeah, like, um, there's a lot to ex there's a lot to excess here. There's a lot to, um, to enjoy. And, and I think, I would probably put Prodigy in the top five of my favorite Star Trek series at this point. Definitely. Yeah, it would be in the top five. DS9 still rounding out the very, very top. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, no, it's up there.
1: Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, for me, it's deep space nine. And then this kind of nebulous cloud of other Star Trek series, depending on how I'm feeling that day and whether I have indigestion (laughs) or (laughs) I'm bad at ranking stuff. Like I'm just going to put that right out there, but, uh. Yeah, it's, there's been moments where it's approached that and which has blown me away. So yeah, I'll, I'll just end this by turning it to our audience and I would love to hear from you. What did you think of Prodigy? Is there anything that you violently disagree with us about or anything you want to say? Please reach out to us positivelytrack at gmail.com. And also our Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook. You can make a comment there. There'll be a thread for this episode. We'd love to hear from you. I think uh, hearing from the listeners is one of my favorite parts about doing this show. So Well, this has been a really fun discussion of Star Trek Prodigy. I think we've kind of discussed it from stem to stern with still so much more to be said about it, I think. So uh, it kind of blows me away how quickly an hour plus goes by talking about this stuff. So thank you, those of you who have stuck with us. And like Barry said, if you've gone this far and not seen the show, first of all, I question your life choices, <laughs> but yeah. second of all,
2: go watch it. It is well worth the viewing. So yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> worth a binge too. I, I-, I watched it feverishly while sick and and I I put a lot of episodes together and they they really blend in my brain but um, it was really fun I loved it yeah
1: I kind of want to go back and watch it again I've just watched it you know a couple times each episode that came out but still just as it aired so I'd love to go back and start at the beginning and and just go through the story again yeah if I had all the time in the world that would be great great (laughs) Well, thank you all so much for listening. We will talk to you again in the next episode. Until then, as always, stay positive.